Every day, people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, would you rather go to the lake or the beach? Welcome to the second episode of Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm Katie Harbeth, your host. I'm solo today. I wasn't able to find a guest host. and This is going to happen every once in a while. So I hope people are okay with that. I'm doing all of this solo except for the editing. And so managing the scheduling and reaching out to people and figuring all of that out. As those of you who do podcasts know, this is a lot of work. And so I appreciate the grace and help as I continue to kind of navigate through all this. I also, in all honesty, wasn't sure if I was going to do the second one this week. Part of me thought this weekend that, you know, doing a newsletter than a podcast one on Wednesday and the podcast on Thursday felt like a lot. It felt like a lot of hearing from me and maybe it was too much. But I'm going to try it again this week because I've got content. But I'd love to hear from you if you think that it would you would rather only hear this every other week. If you're cool how it is, tell me, Katie, you're overthinking all this, all that jazz. I'm trying not to put too much stress on myself about making all of this stuff perfect and instead just trying to get stuff out there that I think is interesting. And I've got a lot of really awesome people lined up for the podcast going here into the fall. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm excited about trying this solo. And so I thought I'd share with you some thoughts I have on a couple of different stories that I'm paying attention to. But first and foremost, I got to answer my own impossible trade-off question, whether or not you'd like to go to the lake or the beach. And I have to admit, I'm a lake gal. My parents have a cabin in northern Wisconsin on a lake up there that is absolutely beautiful. It is my happy place. I love nothing more than going on morning kayak rides and hearing the loons on there. We have two loons that my nephews named uh, Stinky and Pinky that live on that lake. And every spring, we're always watching to see if they have little loon babies or not. But I also have to admit, I'm not wild about going and sitting on the beach. But man, do I love a pool with an ocean view. That is quite spectacular. And particularly, as many of you know, I spend a lot of time on the eastern shore here when I'm in D.C. And so that has also become my happy place as well. So I'm a little bit of an in-between, but if you make me pick, I'm going to choose Lake. Let's get into the news of the day. Um, one thing that I am keeping an eye on is there are elections happening in Slovakia on September 30th and then in Poland um, here in October. And these are two elections that are going to be the first tests of the European Digital Service Act now that it is in effect. And Mark Scott of Politico, who I highly, highly, highly recommend that you follow. He's a great reporter, does a regular newsletter called Digital Bridge that is my go-to place of keeping an eye on everything that is happening in Europe around all of this. And he had a story earlier this week about Brussels warning many of the social media companies, Alphabet, TikTok, Meta, that they need to do more to protect Slovakia's election from foreign interference, um, and that they're also really paying attention to the, the Polish elections. There's growing concerns that disinformation and a pro-Kremlin ideology are spreading among local social media users, including supporters of Robert Fico, the country's controversial former prime minister. And so 
The companies were called in to talk to the officials during the week of September 11th to make sure and understand what it was that they were doing. Um, and there's a lot of concern that they aren't doing enough. There's different civil society groups that have shown that some of the hate speech and other things are higher in that country ahead of the elections. And they want these companies to do more to take this stuff down. And I should note that X apparently didn't show up at all, which isn't going to be great for, for them. But uh, one thing I would just say on this is I think, A, what I'm watching here is, you know, I always kind of joke that Europe is the dog that caught the regulatory car because I think that they're going to find that monitoring this stuff and taking action in a fast fashion is actually going to be really hard. And I'm going to be really curious to see how the DSA officials do doing this stuff sort of in real time versus after the fact. And there's certainly something to be said about doing things after the fact and holding companies accountable because that can help in terms of going forward. But it doesn't do much for when you're in the thick of it with the election. So I'm going to be keeping an eye on that. I'm going to be keeping an eye if any of the platforms publicly share what they are doing to prepare for these elections. They didn't share much here in these stories. Um, typically, these aren't we would normally do something when I was at Facebook around these elections. For sure, we would do election day reminders. We'd have fact checking programs, which is some of what Meta has shared. But it's hard to know exactly what other interventions they might be thinking about unless they publicly tell us or when they tell the DSA and does any of that become transparent. So I'm definitely be keeping an eye on that as well. And so it's certainly a wait or see type of situation. And it's a really good test of how these companies are going to react in some of these, um, I hate to call them smaller elections, but they're ones that outside of the region, most people are not paying attention to when they they really should, because these things can have kind of bigger impacts, particularly right now, given that region and Russia's war on Ukraine and everything that is happening. So that is the first thing that I am paying attention to this or have been paying attention to this week. The second thing is Bruce Melman, who is one of my favorite people in DC, does a quarterly report kind of looking at what is happening in US politics. And so if you are a US political junkie, he is somebody to follow. You can go to melmanconsulting.com to see his latest one called Possibilities and Probabilities, a dozen questions for the next 13 months. And a couple of things that I find interesting in here, first on the politics side, and then you is a little bit on AI regulation that I want to touch on first. The first is whether or not 2024 is going to be a rematch between Trump and Biden. And a lot of people think that this is inevitable, that this is what's going to happen. I'm still in the camp of, I think it's a little too soon to tell um, whether or not, and my hot take party trick this summer has been to say that I don't think Trump or Biden are going to be our nominees. And Bruce goes through that a little bit of that. There are alternatives and exit ramps and scenarios in which either Biden or Trump could exit first and foremost is some sort of health incident. Uh, for Biden, it could be a family crisis with all the Hunter Biden stuff. With Trump, it's all of his court cases and if he's found guilty at all. Um, also on the Republican side, there's a lot of opposition candidates. And does that opposition consolidate into one candidate? There was a new New Hampshire poll that showed that Trump was ahead with 39%, but then the opposition was sort of equally breaking out the rest. And so if they're able to consolidate, 
could there be somebody that actually could compete with him? And then Biden is also facing a lot of questions from the establishment and others. You know, there's a Washington Post column a couple a week or so ago about how Biden shouldn't run again in 2024. And so I'm always reminded, I know the world is very different today than what it was in 2007. But when I was working on the Giuliani campaign, when he was America's mayor, I always feel like I have to remind people there was a period of time about that. But, you know, in 2007, at this point in time, we still thought that it was going to be a Rudy Giuliani, Hillary Clinton matchup. And it ended up being an Obama McCain matchup. And so I think there's still a lot that can change. I think it's important to pay attention to the state polls and not just the national polls as we're looking at this. Now, is it a high likelihood that it still ends up being Biden Trump? Absolutely. But I still think that we are in for a roller coaster ride that we've never seen before. And there is still the chance that it ends up not being those two. Now, if it is, Bruce says his second point, why this is the least anticipated sequel. Um, he says since Caddyshack 2. I don't know if I'd, I'd, I'd say that. I'd have to think of a, maybe a little bit more relevant one for my generation, though I love Caddyshack. Not to offend anybody out there. <laughs> I should be careful. But is the fact that like, are both parties trying to lose? And what is this going to look like for turnout? There's a lot of concern that we'll just have people won't care. They won't want to pay attention. They're not going to be excited. They're not going to go to the polls. They're not going to vote. And there was a story this week in Politico about how some of the major donors are no longer supporting candidates other than Trump because they're just like, why waste the money? Why are we going to do this? And so this lethargic and lack of energy is going to be something to really pay attention to because then I really hate it because then you're basically conceding the the election, a major election, one that has a lot of consequences to people who um to just the people who show up at the polls. And those tend to be diehards on either side of the, the political spectrum. And so I think that people need to be really careful about just disengaging and just not participating because, you know, this, this is going to be a really close election and your vote alone might not seem that important in the grand scheme of things. But remember, the president's decided in electoral college. Um, so it's by state. And also for many of your local races, these are going to be tight races. So I get that it's a year out. I get that I'm a political junkie and I pay attention to this stuff all the time. All I'm asking is for those of you who may not be as political junkies and are just sort of like, what's it worth? Why should I even do this? Please at least pay a little bit of attention. Please know when your primary is. Um, I'll be reminding folks on that quite a bit. Around that, make sure you're registered to vote, all of that good stuff. You can go and check your voter registration and all of that jazz. I am on the board of a great organization called Democracy Works and it's Democracy dot works and they have a tool called turbo vote that you can go and check a lot of that stuff out to make sure that you are all set for everything and you can even sign up for text messages and stuff like that to give you reminders which is fantastic the last thing i want to note about bruce's memo and it's 41 pages or slides long so you should go there and check it out yourself but is in terms of if ai regulations are coming and interest in regulating ai in the u.s does keep rising but he kind of looks at how ai regulation is likely to mirror internet regulation which which has been slow, regional, and inconsistent in his mind. So the EU has taken an approach of protect and a very heavy regulation. The U.S. has been very light 
on the regulation left a lot to the states and voluntary or industry self-regulation. And China's been all about control and where the state dictates all of this. And he kind of goes through, he's got a great graphic here that I'll link to in all the show notes around what the economic impact of all of that, what the societal impact is of all of that. And his prediction is that AI will follow something similar to that. And I think we're sort of seeing that where, again, Europe, China's been putting very strict controls on AI. Europe's well ahead in terms of negotiating some AI regulation. We're going to be seeing some of that here in November and as well. And then the US, while there's a lot of talk about it and all the congressional hearings and everything like that, like he's got a great graph here that shows that there's been 25 congressional hearings on AI here in 2023, whereas in uh, 2022, there was only seven. Same thing in 2021, there was only seven. So there's definitely a heightened interest in all this. But I highly recommend you go and check it out. I always find that he gives sort of a breath of uh, kind of fresh air and like a calming breath of like, okay, let's resituate ourselves of where we actually are today. Take zooming out and kind of like, all right, let's put this in perspective as we go into this. And I think, again, as we're going into what I think will just be an absolutely crazy uh, upcoming year, um, it's he's a voice to definitely listen to. All right. Last but certainly not least, I also want to mention uh, the upcoming Supreme Court session will be uh, starting here in October. And we have the Supreme Court is set here on the 26th. So by the time you hear this will have already happened. Um, they'll be discussing whether or not they're going to take up the Texas versus Florida cases. And we should hear about whether or not they're going to do that in the coming days. So but when you're hearing this, we may already know. Um, but we do know that on October 31st, they will be hearing cases on whether or not government officials can block people from engaging on their social media accounts. And so they're hearing two cases on this on the 31st. And I think this is going to be a really interesting one um, because the impossible trade-off here really is that I completely understand about not wanting government officials to block people who are with opposition voices, who are respectfully trying to engage with their elected officials on any sort of information. They should always have access to it, et cetera. But on the flip side, we know that elected officials and government officials are harassed. Um, we've seen that from election officials up to obviously president and everyone in between. Women in particular are faced with a lot of harassment online and regularly beg the social media companies for more tools and more help in which to be able to manage all of that. Um, and so both of these are real issues that I think need to be weighed about what it is that a government official has to uh, allow in terms of engagement with their constituencies on this. And this is just about them blocking people from like commenting on their own pages and stuff. They can't kick people off uh, any of these platforms whole, wholesale on all of this. And so I'll be curious to see how much the court kind of understands the nuances in these in this decision and where they go on this um, in in terms of determining it, because I think it's going to be one of the first of many issues in court cases we hear the Supreme Court take up around technology and the First Amendment and all of that good jazz.
I now want to welcome Reno Valadrino, who was somebody on my team at Facebook. And I promise not all these interviews are going to be people that I knew at Facebook, but a lot of them are. And a lot of them are doing really cool things. And I want to elevate them and their voices, especially as they're going off post meta and trying to figure out the next chapters in their careers. But Reno was on my team and he covered Indonesia. And he goes a little bit more into his background because he did both some of the elections work in Indonesia, but then he also was the head of public policy there in the country for a while. And so this, I found, was a really interesting conversation. I really wanted to dig into just some of the basics of how elections in Indonesia work. I wanted to go into some of the candidates, some of the the tech laws that they have there, particularly around fake news, and some of the issues that might emerge as they go into election. Their election is going to be February 14th of 2024. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Reno, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for inviting me, Katie. So nice to be reunited. I love bringing the team back together. Um, And I promise listeners, we're not going to only have meta people on as guests, but they're just so knowledgeable and I'm so excited. And when Reno told me that he was available to, to do this, I was just so excited. So first and foremost, I'm hoping that you can give our listeners, a lot of them probably don't really pay attention to what's happening in Indonesia. They might not know the basics of the structure, elections, all that. Can you give us a little overview of the country? Yeah, uh, happy to. And and Indonesia is a very interesting country. It's a country close to my heart. I'm still an Indonesian and uh, we have one of the, or if not the most uh, interesting elections, at least in in Asia Pacific that I know of, right? Uh, It's a festivity in Indonesia during the election season. So five years ago, we we worked together for the 2019 election and uh, fast forward uh, five years the 2024 election is uh, almost here, right? And uh, this year election is very, very interesting as well. Uh, so for all listeners, uh, the election will be on Valentine's Day, 14th of February. So it's a landmark Valentine's Day for Indonesia. Things are starting to heat up on the ground. September and October is a is a very interesting month uh, because people are forming coalitions, right? And there's a lot of movement on the ground in terms of who's backing who. And all the candidates are very, very active in, in trying to secure their position within uh, within the tickets, right? Campaigns have started to some extent. Uh, however, the official campaign period will only start on November 28th. But this is September. And if, if one of you go to Jakarta, our capital, you'll see a lot of uh, political party flags and candidates putting uh, banners, every uh, billboard uh, everywhere, right? And on, on 14th of February, we'll have three major elections. So it's not going to be only one day. It's going to be probably a, a year of elections for Indonesia. So on 14th of February, we'll have the presidential election and the House of Representatives elections. If the presidential election goes to the second round, then we'll have another election probably on June or July uh, 2024. And then nearing end of the year, we'll have another election to choose our uh, governors, our regions, and, 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 and the provincials, provincial elections. And this is going to be consecutive as well for all provinces and all regions and cities in Indonesia because uh, we've been holding that election. So those who, whose term has ended, they are filled by temporary replacement for their uh, seats, and then everyone, governors, regions, will be elected again in, in November 2024. So it's going to be a very, very long year for Indonesia. Some of the political analysts on the ground hope 
that the presidential can uh, presidential elections don't actually go to the second round so it's, it can be finished within february and then we'll probably have another election in november so the country can still run right uh, otherwise it's going to be three major elections in a year um and and basically the country will be just footing for for the year so i didn't realize that there was going to be a year of elections and i also didn't realize that the runoff would be so far after february you know some countries the runoffs just like a month later or something like that like that's a really yeah. long period of time for in between elections yeah uh, and there was there are already questions about it so there's going to be discussions about whether the regional elections is going to be kept in november or is going to be fast forward within uh, probably one to two months um and i guess the the argument for this is uh, exactly at point right we want the country to keep on running we don't want indonesia to be absent for for a year uh, we're we're just starting our economic recovery um and i think the one issue that emerged uh, from indonesia is uh, the changing of our capital so uh, jakarta will not be the capital city anymore it'll be uh, nusantara by 2024 so the government is trying very very hard to attract a lot of uh, foreign investments uh, and a lot of infrastructures building need to be completed so if there is a year long of elections then all of this will go into questions right who's going to continue uh, will business will foreign uh, companies look to indonesia and say Hey, 2024 is a good year for Indonesia. Let's uh, keep on investing, um, or will they actually uh, re-strategize their uh, their perspective to Indonesia? So there's a lot of chapters on that, and uh, I think a lot of uh, experts and analysts on the ground are actually pushing for the at least the regional elections to be uh, held in September. So by October, we're basically completed all the uh, election processes. That's great. I love it. I'm already learning so much. I didn't know the capital was changing either. <laughs> like it's fantastic. To go back to basics really quickly, can you share how many parties there are roughly in the country and when it comes to voting, it's not is it parliamentary where you're voting for the party versus a person or are you voting for the specific person? Like give us a little bit of those kind of specific details. Yeah, um so we do have layers of electorals in 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 the country. Uh I'll step step back a little bit uh for for context right uh, so this year in in 2024 next year we'll have consecutive elections uh the 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 three elections that i that i just mentioned but this is a changing system uh so back in 1999 uh we used a close proportional system and then in 04 we changed it into a semi open proportional system and then 2009 and 2019 uh it's fully open proportional system meaning that as an indonesian when when i go to the voting ballot on 14 of february i have to pick my presidential candidate i have to pick my political party and then i have to pick my national house of representatives so that's three and then i have to pick my provincial house of representatives four and then i have to pick and depending on the on the provinces that you live in uh, you might have to pick the fifth one which is the city level house of representatives in the national level house of representatives alone from the 18 political parties that are contesting uh, or have been vested by the election commission to contest we do have more than that Katie uh, so we have uh, around i think 40 50 political parties 
But this year, 18 has been vested to contest. In the national House of Representatives level alone, there are 9,919 political candidates from all 18 political parties. Uh, And what's interesting this year as well is that KPU, our election commission, has just changed the number of seats available for contests in the national House of Representatives. So in 2019, we have... Uh, we had 575 uh, seats that we can contest for. This year, we have one, uh, 580, so that there are additional five seats. Uh, this is due to new provinces. So we have uh, four new provinces that we open in the island of Papua. And this is signed, uh, the regulation is signed by uh, President Jokowi back in uh, 2022. So the 9,919 candidates uh, will contest for these 580 seats. And yeah, I mean, I guess the question there is always whether our system actually allows for an extreme multi-party system, a multi-party environment uh, in the House of Representatives itself, right? So there's a... uh, ongoing debate on how to uh, make sure that all the political parties who made it into parliament uh, are the high quality ones right that's that's what we want from uh, from the elections uh, yeah so that that's the the current situation and current uh, numbers that we are contesting on. And that's why people might form coalitions, right? Like for Americans who are just used to two parties, um, you know, when you have, you know, so many at 18, it's unlikely that any one of them is going to get the majority um, and be able to rule just on their own, right? So they have to, they have to make deals and negotiate with other parties to, in order to, for whomever will kind of like be the the majority party, right? Yeah. So uh, this is why September and October are actually very, uh, very interesting, right? And again, there is a lot of question about this particular regulation, but uh, we do have a threshold for the presidential candidacy and also the parliamentary threshold, right? So uh, for parties who don't get above 4% in the national election, they will not have seats in the parliament, in the national level parliament. So they might have seats in the provincial parliament, but they will not have a have a seat uh, in the national parliament. And of course, the question uh, on this regulation is whether the the amount of votes that they get is seen unvaluable by the regulation, right? If they get, let's say, 3.7%, which is in Indonesia, you, you get a, a lot of votes, like 3.7% in Indonesia is quite a lot, right? Um, in 2019, we used to have 100, around 193 million registered voters, so 3.7% of that is actually quite significant and whether we, we actually value that. So there's a lot of question on that as well. And then the other threshold that uh, that we have is actually the presidential threshold. So if you want to uh, put a candidate on the ballot, all of these parties need to form at least 20% um, of the total national uh, uh, voting and then they can propose their their presidential and vice presidential candidates. So only when you form or when you formally form this coalition that has surpassed 20%, then you might have a ticket uh, to contest in the presidential election. And there are a lot of a lot of movements uh, currently on the ground um, on this coalitions. I think it's uh, it's even hotter than these parties actually trying to get above 4%, right? Which is 
sometimes it's unique when you see this type of situation because then you think like, why don't you sort of like focus on your party first and then form a coalition? But of course, because everybody wants to back a winning horse in the presidential candidate, then they're all focusing uh, on how to form a coalition. Right now, we have three coalitions in place. Got it. And remind me for the runoff, is it if no candidate gets above 50%, is it just the top two that go into the runoff? Correct. Yeah. Only the top two. Okay. Well, let's, let's shift over to, to tech and how all of this looks like, looks like online. Um, can you share a little bit about, um, how tech is used by the parties and the candidates and what some of the popular platforms are? Yeah. I mean, uh, tech is the thing, right? Like, uh, I think in, 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 uh, back in 2014, uh, which was the, one of the first elections in Indonesia that candidates use uh, tech platforms widely. Uh, back in 2014, uh, the internet penetration of Indonesia is around 55 to 60%, depending on the uh, different types of research that we refer to. And then if you fast forward to today in 20, uh, 2023, um, some research have even claimed that our internet penetration is actually 80%. And most of these 80% citizens of Indonesia who are connected to the internet, uh, they use it mainly on, what else, right? Social media. And all social media are actually thriving on the ground, Katie. We, of course, have uh, uh, have our, our familiar platforms. Uh, the Facebook is still uh, one of the go-to uh, information source for uh, a lot of provinces. It might not be the biggest thing in town anymore. If you look at if you're looking at the bigger cities like Jakarta and and other uh, big cities in Indonesia, but there are also provincial provinces that are new to internet. Right? They're just they just get connected within the last five years. Uh, they just get access to quality internet and they just get access to, to social media as well uh, because it's now getting more affordable in terms of data and mobile subscription. So for these type of provinces, Facebook is still the way to go. And of course, you have the, the traditional one, Instagram. All the candidates love Instagram. I think this is where they're, they're most active uh, currently. All three presidential candidates, um, actually, their Instagram accounts is uh, or are their spearhead accounts, right? So they post first on on, on IG, um, and then they spread it to, to other platforms. And we have also uh, emerging social media like uh, TikTok. Uh, TikTok is, I think much harder for the candidates to win in TikTok because they have to change their style a little bit. Some of the candidates, especially the VP candidates, they've been trying hard to win uh, hearts of TikTok users by changing their, their campaign styles. And it's very unique to see that as well. But you also have the, the other traditional one, which is YouTube. And YouTube is used widely by content creators. And actually, as we speak uh, right now, there was a a first live uh, broadcasting uh, shown by uh, Nachwa Sihab, which is the most prominent journalist, political journalist in Indonesia. She has a, a, her own channels on YouTube now, and she just broadcasted uh, all three presidential or all, all three top presidential candidates and uh, basically asked them uh, questions. So very similar to presidential debates. But it's shown exclusively exclusively from her YouTube channel. So all these four apps 
um, are, are thriving quite quite well in in political years. Um, and then you you also have volunteer groups trying to form groups in in WhatsApp and other social messaging uh, platforms as well. And, um, you know, one of the things in at least America and the Western world is how much people are moving from linear TV to streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I find interesting is that one of the more popular streaming platforms in Indonesia, is it called video? How do you how do you pronounce that? It's video. Yeah. Yeah. Are you seeing I don't even know, like, will candidates run advertising on streaming platforms? Like that, or do any of that, or do, do, are they mainly sticking right now to like social media platforms and, and stuff like that? I think right now they're sticking to social media platforms and video. Right, uh, video as 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 of the current is a uh, uh, is focused on on streaming or on becoming streaming platform. So they don't actually show uh, user generated content uh, in 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 Indonesia. And uh, basically, what they're trying to compete with is the likes of uh, Netflix, right? So they uh, they want to produce uh, more local contents from Indonesia, and I think that's how they also become one of the top local streaming platforms that can compete with the global company. Do they accept advertising? Um, they do at some point, but I, I don't think they uh, they allow political ads for now. Okay, yeah, I was curious, yeah. and I was looking on their website, and I couldn't see anything. Yeah specific around political advertising. I realized before we keep going into tech and I want to get into some of your background too, who are going to be the main candidates for president next year? Because yeah. there's the current president, Jokowi, but uh, just for the listeners for context, who are sort of the main ones that'll be running for, for the highest office? Yeah. Uh, so this is where it gets interesting, right? And the situation with Jokowi is very interesting as well because he has two periods of presidency under his belt. And usually, as as you know, Katie, the approval rating for this type of long period of leadership usually falls under 50%. But Jokowi right now has 80% approval rating, plus minus, right? Um, so it, it makes things interesting because right now all three candidates, they're trying to be the closest to Pak Jokowi, right? And this is where I think Indonesians have a very, very big a homework to really choose which candidates have the best policies for Indonesia moving forward. And the first candidate that we'll talk to is is, is the famous uh, ex-Jakarta uh, governor, Mr. Anis Baswedan. Uh, so Anis Baswedan has been uh, one of the, or has been seen as the wild card in the election. He's backed by a small coalition uh, consisting of uh, the National Democratic Party and the uh, uh, the the PKP uh, party who is affiliated with Nadatul Ulama, the biggest um, Islamic organization uh, in Indonesia, alongside of Muhammadiyah. So uh, it's also backed by uh, PKS, which is in the past has been has been labeled as the more conservative Islamic parties, right? So it's also unique because this could be one of the first time where the two different types of uh, Islamic parties can back uh, one candidate. So this is the first one, Mr. Anis Baswedan. He is now polling. He's doing better lately. Uh, he's now polling around 18 to 20 percent, depending on which uh, polling. He is also the first candidate who announced the VP candidate. So they have, as of we, uh, as of we speak right now, they have a complete 
uh, ballot. They're ready for the election. Uh, but the one thing that I know about Indonesian election is nothing is fixed until the, the D-Day, right? And uh, 11.59 p.m. before the, the election commission's registration is closed, then we can say everything is fixed, right? Uh, but until then, it could change. So that's the first candidate. And then the second one is what people uh, always say is the closest regeneration of Pak Jokowi, which is the ex-governor of central Java, Mr. Ganjar Pranowo. So Mr. Ganjar Pranowo is, has been very well liked in the past few years. He is one of the most top performing governors in Indonesia. He actually came from the same party as Pak Jokowi, the PDIP. Um, and he's very, very similar to Pak Jokowi in terms of campaigning style. He's very uh, close to the people. He actually likes uh, being with the people. Uh, so that has been his campaigning style until today. He's also a, an, an ex-member of parliament. Uh, so there's a bit of a complete package in terms of legislative and executive side of him as well. Um, unfortunately, he hasn't been uh, polling as high as the ruling party would like, right? Because uh, what they expected is we have a candidate that is perfect, right? He is a continuation of Pajokowi. He is backed by uh, the same party. Uh, but over the last three to four weeks, his polling has been stagnant. Uh, and there was even a question whether PDIP can reevaluate his candidacy. However, he is doing better in the last two weeks. He's doing better in social media. He speaks a lot more about uh, policies. And uh, I think he's starting to get that grabs of, uh, hey, I'm, I'm actually contesting in the presidential election right now. right? And probably he needed that, uh, that switch from a governor perspective to, uh, to a presidential candidate perspective. So second candidate, uh, Mr. Ganjar Prano, hasn't announced uh, a VP yet. Uh, so there's still a lot of chatters on who's going to be his VP candidate. Uh, and last but not least, uh, Mr. Prabowo Subianto, who is the current Minister of Defense. He, uh, he surprised many uh, on the ground uh, because he contested in many elections before. He contested in 2009. Uh, he contested in 2014 and 2019 and opposed President Jokowi directly. Uh, and after the 2019 election, of course, uh, I think the global news is uh, when he joined President Jokowi as one of his uh, ministers. So Paprabo has been polling really, really well to his standards. So he's polling anywhere between uh, 28 to 30 percent. Paganjar is polling around 30 to 31 percent, so they're very close uh, between the between the these two candidates. And of course, Paprabo uh, surprised many when he actually uh, portrays himself as very close either to Pak Jokowi. Right. So when you go around uh, Indonesia right now, uh, there are even a lot of banners when. Uh, where where uh, it says uh, vote for Pak Prabowo, but the picture is actually Pak Jokowi and Pak Prabowo. So those are the the current three uh, leading candidates. Um, there are a few others who are still trying to be presidential candidate, but I think given uh, this is already September, uh, the window is actually closing for other candidates to 
form another coalition. That's super helpful. Thank you. Um, I want to shift back to what the platforms might be doing. But before we go into that, I think it'll be helpful for people to know a little bit more about about you and sort of um, where you come from um, in Indonesia and your career path and sort of what you did at Meta. Yeah, uh, happy to share. I mean, uh, my career started around 10 years ago. Uh, I graduated from University of Melbourne in Australia, uh, did political science uh, and a lot of campaigning degree, uh, sorry, campaigning subjects. Um, and when I come back to uh, Indonesia, I was given the opportunity to be a digital campaigner for presidential candidates, in this case, uh, Mr. Prabowo Subianto in, in 2014 election. Uh, and, and when we finished the campaign, we lost to Jokowi back then. Um, I did a consultancy for, uh, for public affairs companies uh, within the region. And in 2016, I was a digital campaigner again for the then Jakarta governor candidate, Mr. Sandiaga Uno, who is the current Minister of Tourism and Creative Economy. He's been also trying to uh, put himself back in the presidential and vice presidential candidacy. So after 2016, um, then I went to Singapore. I did my uh, master study in public policy uh, because I really want to have a, a deep dive on how politics actually affects policy, right? Not only the campaigning side, but how can we actually uh, tailor policy for, for the better goods for the people. Um, and of course, after the uh, I finished my my degree in, in National University of Singapore. Um, I joined your team at Meta uh, back then in, in 2018. Uh, so we did uh, a lot of our Meta's in, uh, election integrity efforts, uh, trying to uh, make sure that we have uh, strong collaboration with the election commissions, uh, strong collaborations with uh, relevant ministries. Um, and I was glad uh, to have the opportunity to be very involved in, in the 2019 Indonesia election. And we basically did a lot of programs for, for that election. And recently, two and a half years ago, I switched them a little bit, still at Meta, switching to the to the public policy side. So I was a public policy, our public policy manager for Indonesia, Brunei, Malaysia, Timor-Leste. Got a chance to cover the Malaysia, the recent Malaysia election as well. And uh, until recently, uh, I was the head of public policy for uh, Indonesia and Brunei, when, where I'm responsible for all of our regulatory affairs, uh, our investment strategy in the country, and our collaboration with our government. Uh, so that was until, I think, this month. And, and now looking forward to my next chapter. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you. And I'm hoping, could you go a little bit deeper into what some of those programs were that we did in 2019 and also mm-hmm. what you're seeing platforms starting to do to prepare for next year's elections? Yeah. Uh, and this is, uh, I feel, a good trend that we set from 2019, right? I'm not trying to to put all the credits on our team, but it it did start in 2019, right? Where all the companies, at least the the tech companies, are starting to be really actively involved in the Indonesia election. So I think for all listeners, uh, what we did was a holistic effort uh, to make sure that uh, the Indonesia election is fair and safe uh, on the platforms. And to achieve this, there are a lot of uh, back-end work that we did in, in 2019, 
And if I can categorize, I think we can uh, categorize into three. Uh, the first one is, of course, the intervention on platforms, right? We try to identify um, extremism speech. Uh, we try to identify hate speech. We try to identify fake accounts as fast as possible and how to respond to potential conflicts uh, that might arise from some of the narratives on the platform. Right? And fears, uh, I think, five, uh, four years ago, we had that experience of people just uh, posting status on the platforms, uh, and it ended up in a in a real world fighting. Right, so we want to prevent uh, things like that from happening, and this is why we work with researchers, we work with academics and NGOs to make sure that all of the teams within our company have uh, full context on what's happening, not only on the situational basis but also on cultural basis. Right, how some languages that are used on our platforms can be used to, to, to mock other groups of people as a satire, for example, which is very, very hard for uh, automation system to capture. Right? And uh, countries like Indonesia, where we have variety of languages, this is very, very important. So I think that's the first pillar. And the second pillar, uh, which is my uh, favorite pillar from, from back then, is uh, how we support an informed electorate, right? So we go all over the countries. I think uh, at some point in Indonesia, we train somewhat over like 5,000 uh, folks from different backgrounds, from the election commission, election supervisory bodies, again, academic researchers, NGOs, communities, uh, on how they can be uh, our voice of reasons uh, on the platforms. And this is what we felt back then, that a lot of the misinformation that are happening on tech platforms also happen because there is an absence of voice of reasons on the platforms, right? The folks who have um, the accurate information are often silent and the folks who have misinformation are often very, very active. So we want to encourage and make sure that our voters are, are informed and the electorate have accurate information from, uh, from our, our platforms. So we did that countless of trainings, events, uh, and collaborations with the election commissions. Um, and the third and last but not least pillar, uh, which is, I think, my competition of my favorite pillars in the, uh, during the meta days, uh, is regulatory, right? How we discuss uh, future-looking regulation in election. Um, I still remember that uh, back in 2019 to 2020, uh, our team interacted closely with the Election Commission of Indonesia on how best to regulate political ads. And back then, um, our company is still is the only one who allows politi- who allowed political ads, right? So there is um, there needs to be a very sound uh, argument and very sound discussion between the company and uh, the the commissions on. Uh, making sure the regulation is shaped not only for the 2020 regional elections, but also for next year's elections and for 2029 elections. So we want to make sure that we give or we share best practices from around the world, making sure that the Indonesian election regulators can decide uh, on the best uh, regulatory approach that is that is uh, future-proof, right? And we're very glad that one of the election regulation in Indonesia and this is probably one of the highlights of uh, our days at uh, at the company as well as uh, as PKPU six. This is the regulation on campaigning on digital platforms, 
and campaigning on electronic platforms. And uh, the Election Commission of Indonesia actually uh, took uh, a long, our long discussions, um, countless nights, and make it into real law. And we we're very happy to uh, to see that it's not a law that only benefits companies, but it's a law that uh, I believe benefits uh, the people of Indonesia and and all stakeholders involved in the election as well. And Indonesia passed a law around, I don't know if they called it fake news, but basically around sort of mis- and disinformation, right, since 2019. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, uh, there's a ministerial regulation. It's called Ministerial Regulation 5 within Ministry of Cominfo. And for your information, Ministry of Common Voice, our Ministry of Information and Communica- uh, Communica- Informatics and Communication. Uh, and there are also some follow-up uh, law passed uh, within the, the, the recent years to support Ministry of Regulation 5. So we have things like criminal code, we have ITE law, the electronic uh, transaction law. So now we have few laws that can govern content on social media, and they are more rob- robust uh, if compared to our days back then, uh, when it comes to when it comes to content category, right? So, uh, in the criminal code law now, there is a, a clear explanation on uh, contents att- uh, attacking uh, national symbols like uh, like the president, right? And how to action contents on that. In the Ministry of Regulation Five law, because it it's signed from a few years back, uh, and I think a lot of tech companies are actually pushing uh, as we speak right now. Uh, for the ministry to have a more detailed law on, on some of the content categories. But basically for uh, for listeners, uh, this law actually governs uh, what is allowed, what is not allowed uh, in, in Indonesia. Um, and But there is still some categories like misinformation that we feel there's a need for the ministry to actually detail down what can be categorized as misinformation, um, and and this effort is actually uh, going on as we speak right now. Is that concern because right now it's too broad, and so is there a concern that it might apply to content that would normally would want to keep up? Yeah, and there's also a concern because uh, the ministry actually formulated another law on uh, sanction, uh, and this is of course not a favorite regulation for all companies, right? And uh, this is called the PNBP regulation. So PNBP is a uh, is an acronym for Non State Tax Revenue, which means that uh, the Ministry of Informatics and Communication can actually uh, put uh, fines if companies uh, violate certain regulations, and uh, they chose uh, for Ministry of Informatics and Communication they chose three aspects to be put under the Non State Tax Revenue Law. Uh, the first one is under spectrum. So this is for our friends at the telco and uh, telecommunication industries and making sure that their practice is in line with the regulation. Uh, the second one is on privacy, which is, uh, I think, expected because there are a lot of violation or potential violations uh, that could happen from the privacy side. And interestingly enough, uh, the third uh, category is content, right? So now for every content, when this law is passed, uh, right now it's, uh, it's still on progress, uh, I think the latest development is that uh, the president is still um, thinking where, uh, when to sign it, uh, but it's, it's there. Uh, so when this law uh, actually passes, uh, Ministry of Informatics and Communication can put administrative sanctions in, in form of fines uh, on top of their 
um, takedown requests. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with takedown requests, is this is where a certain ministry in a certain country report content to tech platforms and it's actually labeled as takedown requests because it's an official request from uh, from the ministry and the platforms have to act upon it. Uh, so failure to act upon uh, takedown requests can result in uh, administrative sanctions. So this is why uh, all platforms, not only uh, social media platforms, but all platforms, uh, telco industries, digital platforms, and, and, and even like uh, tech startups, they're pushing for uh, Ministerial Regulation 5 to be revisited, uh, especially under content, because there's worry that if the category of contents is not clear enough in the Ministerial Regulation, then how can they implement the non-state tax revenue efficiently and accurately, right? The most important uh, part. So this podcast is called Impossible Trade-Offs. And I called it that because, as you know very well, there's a lot of times that you're having to make a choice between some really tough options that you don't kind of want any of them, but you have to make a choice. I'm curious, you know, looking ahead to the year of elections next year, what are some of those tough decisions that you think companies are going to be grappling with? Wow. I love the name. Uh, It it possesses a lot of uh, hard questions, but... We make impossible trade-off every day, right? As you know, uh, and I think uh, for the 2024 election, uh, given this is the first election after 10 years uh, that President Jokowi will not run again, uh, there is an impossible uh, trade-off between, and I guess this is a common theme, but I really felt it uh, in Indonesia, uh, between truth during ele- the election and, and freedom of expression, right? Uh, that's always the hardest part to uh, to facilitate. And as you know, there are a lot of people uh, who are involved in this type of decisions. Uh, and as Indonesia gets more connected, uh, like I mentioned, the internet penetration is rising in Indonesia. Uh, and the government has put a massive amount of effort, effort into digital literacy. But of course, with 270 million people on the ground, it might not be enough, right? Um, there, there's more and more uh, needed to be done. Um, so, given this this situation, um, everybody can can post a truth on the platform, right? And um, whether we act upon it, whether we defend it, and or whether we let it be, I think it's always the hardest trade-off to make. And I believe uh, going into the 2024 election, uh, especially because now we have three candidates, platforms and companies uh, will have a very, very tough time uh, choosing between this, uh, this, th- this two. Well, that I think that's super interesting. And I agree with you. That's one of the toughest things, right? The, the freedom of expression versus fact, truth, but also freedom of expression and safety and balancing yeah. all of those types of things are just going to be a, a continuation. It's a, it's a daily uh, decision that you have to make every single day um, that you wake up, right? And um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually supporting all of my friends who are still in the, um, in the companies and hopefully they can make the best decision for the country. Well, Reno, thank you so much for joining me and walking us through. I learned so much since I miss our conversations with smart people like you on the ground. So I'm really excited that we're able to do this and I appreciate you taking the time. Katie, the pleasure is mine and uh, looking forward to uh, having more conversations like this. Thanks so much. 